In 2009, a book called Nudge was published and behavioural economics became something of a fad amongst governments. Its central thesis is that human beings are too stupid to make sensible decisions. And going by all my own economic decisions, I can testify to this. And we need to be encouraged to gently down the righteous path by cleverly designing something called choice architecture. So is behavioural economics the key to saving us from ourselves and understanding not just consumer choices, but in fact, the entire global financial crisis? Or is this good old nanny state paternalism dressed up in a few marketing tricks? In studio this morning, Dr. Pete Lon is an economist and author of Basic Instincts. Jill Kirby is a personal finance journalist, broadcaster and author. Councillor Keith Redmond, he's a Fingal County Councillor, founder of the Hibernia Forum and extremely rare in Ireland, a self-confessed libertarian. We'll get on to that in a while. And Anna Connolly is a business psychologist with Work Frontiers. <coughs> Are we capable of making rational decisions? And if not, is it up to the government to protect us from our bad decisions? Pete Lund, may I start with you, please? <clears throat> Tell us what behavioural economics is. Well, I'm afraid, Sarah. <laughs> first thing to say is, no, it isn't a fad. It's a scientific movement that's been going on for about 30, 40 years, possibly even longer. And what it's really done is produce replicable scientific findings beginning in laboratory experiments and expanding into field experiments that allow us to better understand how people make decisions and also how easily those decisions can be changed by the context in which they're made. So we might feel like we're very autonomous, like we make our own decisions, but what turns out to be the case is that the context in which the decision is made can radically alter the decision. So if somebody changes that context, they can change your decision. And that, of course, is why behavioural economics is causing a political fuss. Behavioural economics also, I know it's your job to whip up a bit of debate on a Saturday morning, (laughs) does not show that human beings are stupid. Really? It doesn't even really show that they're irrational, I don't think. What it does show is that their decisions can be easily changed and are often inconsistent and that many of the decisions that we have to make are taken under conditions of great uncertainty. It's perfectly rational if you're very uncertain to be swayed by the context around you. And that's what it turns out people are. But that means that not just governments, but private companies can use this science to manipulate and change our decisions. And there's nothing we can do about it. The genie's out of the bottle. The better we understand decision making, the more we know that contextual effects happen and can change decisions, the more people can change context to change our decisions. So that's why there's political debate about it. So give me an example of, say, something like framing, which is one of the issues in behavioural Well, the, cla- the classic example in behavioural economics that's made it far furthest, if you like, into policy and had the biggest effect is pensions. It's changing the default on pensions. If when you join the company... You have to actively sign a form to sign up to the pension. About 20 or 30% of new employees will do it. If instead you're automatically enrolled into the pension scheme and the form is sitting on the desk and you have to sign the form in order to opt out of the pension, only about 20 or 30% of people opt out. In fact, probably more stay in the pension scheme. And it looks like the reason for this is that people are so uncertain about pensions and don't really understand them that if they are, to use the jargon, auto-enrolled, in other words, the default setting is that you're in the scheme, they treat it as as advice from the business or as a signal as to what everybody else is doing. So they think they'll be more comfortable if they go in the scheme too. So they do. Now, New Zealand changed their regulations so that in private companies, people are defaulted into the pension schemes. They did it because... Back in the early noughties, private sector pension coverage in New Zealand was terrible. They were down at about 20% coverage. In a period of about seven or eight years, they've gone from about 20% coverage to over 60% coverage simply by changing the default. The important thing to understand here is 
Nobody was compelled to do anything. It was a completely free choice whether you joined the scheme. All they changed was the social signal involved. And that was changed by just saying, we auto-enroll you and you sign the form to opt out, as opposed to the same form is sitting in front of you and you sign it to opt in. Anna Connolly, will you give me an example of a few more attributes of the ways that we make decisions, the odd ways we make decisions? Well, I guess when we think about decision making, one way to look at it is that we have sort of two types of thinking in our brains. There's a system one thinking where we make very fast decisions and a system two where we make more logical and rational decisions. And uh, this is very useful for us because the sheer amount of information that's coming at us every day means that it just doesn't make sense for us to have to deliberate on every decision. I mean, we'd be paralysed to take any action in our lives. So with this in mind, some of the some of the kind of quirks, if you like, or the, the funny decisions we make is we have a major aversion to losing or to loss. We also love the status quo. So that possibly Pete would know more about this, explains why a lot of us stay with the same bank for years, why we don't change our insurance. So we're quite comfortable with things staying as they are in the status quo. So that's an example of two biases, if you like, that we have in our decision making. What about something like herding then? The way we'll just do what everybody else is doing? Well, there's a great concept, I suppose, (coughs) called social proof. So it takes some of the risk out of decision making, I guess. If we see that lots of other people are following a particular course of action, we'll follow that course of action as well. And there was an, an interesting experiment done where they wanted people in a hotel to reuse their towels in the States and they were having great difficulty with this. So they put a little card in the bathroom and they said to people, uh, you know, seven out of every ten people that use this bedroom have reused the towels. And all of a sudden, the amount of people, there was a dramatic increase in the amount of people reusing the towels. Now, they had tried lots of other cards telling people about the environmental impact, you know, giving people all the, the education. But it was the social proof, if you like, that thing that, oh, everyone else that stayed here reused I was the towel. <coughs> in a hotel once um, in America where clearly they were having a problem with people stealing the bathrobes. And the notice they put up was it is the responsibility of the maid on this floor to account for the bathrobes. Oh, very good. So if you took a bathrobe, she was going to get in trouble. So (coughs) I think that must have probably been an effective stop. I hope they didn't host too many union conferences. Can't see that sitting very well. (laughs) So Jill, you are a a financial Mm -hmm. consumer journalist. And a lot of these bad decisions that we make tend to be on financial decisions. And um, and financial companies know that, you know, we're pretty poor at making decisions. And that one on loss aversion is quite funny. I think, Pete, you were giving an example before how the credit union was encouraging people to take out a loan. They showed a picture of the kids and said, you know, they're not going to be kids forever. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that you take out a loan to go on holidays Mm -hmm. because the idea of the kids growing up would, you know, would encourage you. One of the ways that um, manufacturers of pensions entice people to, you know, take out their product is to produce at the initial sales meeting this wonderful glossy brochure of silver-haired, slim, attractive pensioners <laughs> walking down a beach with their hair blowing in the wind and, you know, the sun <laughs> in the sand and everything. And um, it, it seems to work because people still buy those kind of products, which I, I don't think they should necessarily, um, certainly not the one that the salesman presents to them, because it 
it is very enticing. It, it makes you project forward into that kind of retirement yourself without realizing that, you know, you're 45 years old, you haven't saved a penny, uh, your mortgage is hugely in arrears. I mean, it's just not going to happen in those circumstances. But that is the kind of thing that the manufacturers, I think, take advantage of. It's it's almost impulse buying. You know, you, you know that you need a pension. You don't really want to have to do it. You know that you're probably left a little late to make a huge dent um, in, in retirement at 65. And yet you've got a salesperson saying, if you sign up, if all you have to do is just put away 100, 100 quid a month, you know, and, and you too could have this. So we talked earlier about whether governments should, you know, have a role yeah. in doing this. And to a certain extent, they have. When I first started writing about personal finance, they allowed the pension manufacturers, and I'm talking about pension companies basically with products to sell, they allowed them to really emphasize the projected potential outcome of the money that you were putting away um, based on really, you know, fairly high assumptions of growth without, of course, being obliged to also tell you what the costs and the charges would be and, and all of that kind of negative impact on your fund. Uh, now that's changed. I mean, you know, that, that sort of regulation has improved that. But, but governments have done it the wrong way in that even here in Ireland, there are hundreds of pages of regulation and, and warnings that the advisor or the sales guy still has to go through. And I think they do it very perfunctorily. And I, I have to say, I've practically never spoken to anybody who said they really understand what right, the but, downsides Right, but what were. about the first principle of it, you know, when, that Peter was saying, is that the government has decided... Um, perhaps rationally, um, and you would also presumably advise that it is in our best interest to have a good pension. Absolutely. And yet people are remiss about doing this for all kinds of psychological reasons. It's too far in the future. They need the money now. They mm -hmm. don't want to lose the money now or they might choose a bad product. So the, uh, a government or a company will set up this default option. Yes. Now, do you think they should be doing that? Or if we don't say for our future, well, that's our own luck. Well, we already pay default pensions. Everybody who works is obliged to, to make PRSI contribution and it goes towards the state pension. But unfortunately, the state pension isn't invested. It actually is just a, a form of taxation being paid out to people who are collecting their money every week. Um, but we do, you know, and, and so we haven't rebelled against well, nobody likes paying taxes in PRSI, but everybody mm -hmm. pays it because you're compelled to. I'm actually in favor now of auto-enrollment um, and to make it pretty difficult to, it's not just a matter of just signing one form and getting out of it. I think you probably have to go through a process to get out of it um, because even a 60% success rate in New Zealand probably isn't high enough. There's still a lot of people who don't have it. Um, what I... I'm almost in favor of universal pensions, uh, compulsory universal pensions that would sort of take over the, the PRSI one as well, so long as they were invested and everybody was doing it. But the problem with that is when you allow the government to be the um, proponent and the driver of these sort of things, you then get their rules and their, their way of doing things. And governments haven't been terribly efficient at that, unless it was something we talked about this earlier in the, out in your hall, um, and that is the SSIA scheme. I mean, that was a terrific incentive. You know, there, there is going to be tax relief always on, on pension payments, but the special savings investment account that we all are hopefully all invested in about 10 years ago. Or that more, one I did manage to okay. get right. Yeah. That, well, the government <laughs> got that one right too. Keep it really simple. Allow people to, you know, put a certain amount of money away every month and the government would top it up as they top up, in a sense, pensions now with tax relief. That would, that that's, it's not 
compulsory. I wonder if even if they made it compulsory, that would work certainly. Um, but it wasn't compulsory and a lot of people still invested in it. So they have to be very careful about how they structure a compulsory or auto-enrollment scheme. So Keith Redmond, I mean, the basis of economics is that people will act in their own self-interest and in their they'll know what decision is best for them and they will take that decision. Behavioural economics would say that's really, really actually hard to do. And therefore, the government is saying on some situations, we need to intervene to nudge people or encourage them, not compulsorily, but to make it easier for them to make a decision which is in their best interest. Now, what do you think of that? Well, that presupposes a few things. It presupposes, first of all, that the government, the, this group of men and women sitting in a room, have a monopoly on wisdom and uh, that they know what's best for you as an individual out there when you, they don't know your personal circumstances whatsoever. Um, the idea also that the government is there to make sure that you make good decisions is uh, in itself erroneous. I mean, it's a, it's a bizarre concept that, you know, we elect people to protect us from ourselves. You know, the whole idea of being a, an individual, a citizen in a, in a country, a, a free country, is that you're a free person and you get to make your own decisions up to the point where you start infringing on others. So, like, my view would be, for example, when we come back to the idea of a pension scheme, and we have many other options to talk about, but when you're talking about a pension scheme, Jill mentioned that she might be in favour of an auto-enrollment system, a compulsory pension system. Um, it, it won't work because it, it's not working. We have that. We have an auto-enrolled compulsory pension system called the PRSI, and it's a pyramid scheme. Everybody knows it's a pyramid scheme. The money isn't there. Uh, the government doesn't invest it, as Jill said. What they do is they use it as a current revenue, and they just dole it out to whoever is politically expedient at the time. So you can't have a government making a, a pension system because they're always going to have a better political reason to spend that money. So we know that auto-enrollment doesn't work when it comes to state-run schemes. Um, if you had an auto-enrollment system where it was protected from the government, so it was in private companies, private pension companies, mm. it, it might make a bit of sense, you know, but at the same time, compuls- um, kind of making it compulsory for people to spend their money today because they might want it when they're older. Well, what if they're dead? You know, so the point is that people well, can make their own decisions about their the, own money. Go back to the fundamental thing about behavioural economics, which is that it's really hard for people to make um, a good decision in their best interest. Is it? Do, well, <laughs> well, see, that's that's another that's another kind of you know assumption. So let's yeah, say it's not an assumption. Well, if I could just if I could just well, just mention one thing, right? So, okay. for example, if you if the premise of behavioural economics is that there's a an, a kind of an objective truth in good decision, bad decision, okay? So, for example, let's say s- smoking cigarettes, all yeah. right? So, now I don't smoke. I think I personally think smoking cigarettes is insane, okay? But am I to be then, then made the Minister for Health and to be made to foist my belief on everybody else? And if, if, I, then, if I then say, well, you know what? I think that smoking cigarettes is bad, so I'm going to make sure that no one can do that because objectively I find that true. Now, a smoker might turn around to you and say, well, do you know what? You know, I enjoy smoking cigarettes. You know, I get pleasure from smoking cigarettes. Um, I read the packet. I know the risks that I'm taking. But I'm an adult and I'm making those choices on on the basis of a risk-reward basis. So the reward is I'm getting an instantaneous gratification. And the risk is that 20, 30, 40 years from now, I might die early of something horrible. But that's my decision to make. And it's not an objective truth of somebody in a committee room that cigarettes are bad for me. Pete, sorry, sorry. just just intervene for a second. The difficulty with that, of course, though, is that the government picks up the tab and has chosen to pick up the tab uh, for the cost of people smoking. So smokers are not really presented with the 
with the risk part or, or, or the, you know, the, the consequence part of smoking here. And I think, uh, I'm not advocating it, but I think that if, if people were told, fine, it is your decision to smoke, get as much pleasure as you want, but should you fall ill from a smoking-related disease, you will have to pay for your own, uh, you know, there won't be free, allegedly free health care for you. So make sure you take out health insurance. I think that, that, is, I think that um, is absolutely correct, mm. right? And that is but we what, don't do that. But we don't do that. The no. point is that we compulsory confiscate people's income. We call it tax and it pays for this healthcare system. And then we give out to them for using the healthcare system we force them to pay for. So they also pay extra tax in enormous hyper taxation on the cigarettes themselves. So in a way, every cigarette that they put into their mouth, they're paying for the future healthcare. But what we never speak about when we talk about smokers and their drain on the healthcare system is they they don't tend to cost us an awful lot in elderly care. Because they die. Correct, right? So they're dead. And so therefore, we don't pay for a lot of their health care that older people would get. So older people have a myriad of diseases that smokers don't actually cost us for. Pete Lon. The problem with taking ideological perspectives to problems like this, whether it's a libertarian one or a paternalistic one, is that when the world changes and the evidence changes, the danger is you won't notice. What is happening with behavioural economics? <clears throat> it's got nothing to do with premises or assumptions about how people behave, whether people are rational, whether people make good or bad decisions. That's not what's going on here. What is going on here is that science has shown how easy it is to manipulate people's decisions. That's what's going on. So in my lab, I can alter your choice between two personal loans, right? where you're just choosing between two personal loans simply by changing a small contextual factor I can change about 40% of your decisions between products. How do you do that? It's all about how I frame the information. It's all about which price information I make more prominent, what I show you, what I don't show you. You We published this report over the summer showing this, and we also published a test of a potential solution that makes it more likely that you will choose probably what you would most like if you really stopped to think about it hard enough and had all the information available. So what the science is doing there is it's showing how vulnerable your decision-making is to manipulation, but it also is potentially helping you to work out what people really want and therefore what a system might look like that makes it easier for them to choose what they really want and not be manipulated. When we set this up as an argument between individual decision-making and their rights to make their own decisions and their own mistakes against some big bad government that's taking decisions for us, we're completely missing the point because most of the decisions we make are influenced by multiple people and largely the other party involved that's really important here is private companies. And the reason government have really got to pay attention to behavioural economics and have got to get involved, whether they like it or not, is because what it's showing is how easy it is for third parties to manipulate our decisions. If I can Mm -hmm. show in my lab that I can manipulate your decision over personal loans to the extent that I can, of course government needs to worry about it because the danger is that private companies are going to manipulate you in the direction whereby they make Mm -hmm. the most money and you end up bearing too much financial risk. So if you take an ideological approach and say government has no business in our lives, you don't see it when the world changes. The world has changed. The genie is out of the bottle. There is new science there. People can manipulate our decisions. That raises big political issues. And for me, the right way to look at them is look at the evidence about what people really want and try to find systems in the most open and transparent way that you can to help people make better decisions for themselves. And that's the way to use this science. Yeah, but is the problem with the <coughs> nudge stuff is that it's not transparent in itself. 
that it's um, not explaining to people, say, with the pension, you know, we are doing this because we think you're better off in a pension. You know, instead, it's just a clever little trick about auto enrollment and about that page being on the desk that you're too lazy to fill in. Well, it can be and it might not be. I mean, if you introduce auto enrollment, we need to be really clear here. Auto enrollment does not mean compulsory. It's a compulsory thing that you go into your pension. What it means is that the default position is that you go in and that you can choose to opt out if you want to. That's a really important distinction. But look, I mean, a government can introduce that just on the QT or it can publicise it and you know have a whole PR campaign saying it's doing it. That's you know, we, we might prefer governments that are more open or, and transparent and genuine than I do. There is, but the, thing you, the thing you said, Sarah, is important here. I mean, a lot of nudges work. A lot of contextual changes change our decisions without us having any idea that it's happened to us. That happens every time I, I go out for lunch and I unfortunately have to walk down a supermarket aisle where they actually make the queue for the till a row of sweets. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, I am being nudged there. They are making it harder for me to not buy high-fat, high-sugar items in my lunch. Exactly the same happens when I go to one of the coffee shops and I order the coffee and I've resisted the temptation to go for the blueberry muffin that's sitting on the counter, and they say, is that everything or would you like something else? What they're trying to do is make me change my mind because they know I'm tempted to have this high-sugar stuff that's sitting on their counter. In those circumstances, I'm being nudged, right? Now, you're right. A lot of nudges, a lot of changes to our decisions are subconscious. We don't really know they've happened. So I think you're right. When governments do it, they need to be open and transparent about why they're doing it, what is the research evidence on which they are doing it. And I think if they do that, that's a reasonable thing for them to do. Yeah, you see, Anna, I suppose some of my problem with it is um, I wonder, instead of nudging us towards the pension... And this is just one example now. Maybe the reason a lot of people don't want to take out a private pension is because it's a crappy product. There are loads of charges. It's not transparent how it works. You know, who's investing this money? Some dude in a stockbroking firm. And what does he know? Because look at the mess they made of everything. And maybe what I really want is the government to change the actual product to make it more attractive rather than to employ some nudge slash trick slash choice architecture you know to make me take it well I think Pete raises a very good point I mean the government are way the government are way behind on this because supermarkets have been using these techniques for decades and you know buy one get one free um, the, the having all the sweets on the till is my personal bugbear because I have two small children. The smell of bread when so, you walk yes, into the, the smell shop. Of coffee. Yeah. Um, all of these things that kind of assuade our senses uh, when we go when we go to buy something. I think from a psychological point of view, we have um, when we're faced with this kind of bewildering array of options. I think that's where the problem is because we have. You know, we have so much time, only so much time to make decisions. Um, we have only so much sort of cognitive uh, ability to make decisions. Now, but it, we only have so much cognitive ability. Is that the nice way of saying we are just too stupid to handle this stuff? We know we shouldn't buy the sweets. We know that. But we just do it anyway because they're there in front of us. It's, it's I, not we. I think one of the other kind of conceits in this uh, whole kind of nanny state uh, culture is that it's not a we. We never make the, the laws for us. We always make good decisions for us. We make it for the other guy, the stupid guy, you know. Um, for example, one of my uh, pet hates at the moment is the introduction of the minimum alcohol pricing in the new alcohol bill. Minimum alcohol pricing basically means that you can't sell alcohol below a certain price. But it only affects cheap drink, okay? So 
like politicians and doctors who pontificate about this, who tell people like we're doing this for your own uh, interest. It only targets poor people. It doesn't target politicians and doctors going have a brandy and a bottle of Chateauneuf de Pap. It only targets the people getting a few beers from Aldi. So, you know, it, that's, a, an, that's a, an example of not we, but they. And, you know, th- they are poor because they're uneducated and therefore they need to be minded. So I think that, for example, the minimum alcohol pricing is part of a wider uh, alcohol bill. You meant We mentioned on Twitter earlier about this curtain. And, um, oh, yeah, what's a curtain? Right. So basically in the, in the new alcohol bill, there's a, a suggestion that a curtain be placed across all alcohol aisles so people can't see the alcohol. So we have this kind of burqa protecting people from the, you know, the temptation of, of alcohol walking down the aisle. Maybe we need a curtain over the chocolate at the, at, the, at the cash register. I mean, this is the insanity we're getting to with this nanny state stuff, you know? Yeah, uh, no, I have to admit, I remember last Christmas I went out to do my Christmas shop nice and early. The kids were at school, you know, went in, filled up my trolley, got to the till, couldn't pay for the bloody stuff because I couldn't pay for the wine until, you know, half 12, 10 12, or 11. Yeah. Now, I do have to take a break, but Pete, you were shaking your head in total depression there. Keith was speaking. So I'll let you come back in just before. Well, I mean, we, we're supposed to be talking about behavioural economics. I mean, if we equate it to this nanny state stuff, we're again on failing to understand the complexities of what's going on. And yeah. I agree, there are really difficult issues about where we draw the line. I mean, if research shows, as it has done, that plain packaged cigarettes and cigarettes that you have to ask for at the counter and are in a cupboard and can't be seen result in fewer teenagers taking up smoking, well, I think we can have a pretty good debate then about whether it's reasonable for the government to regulate. So there are real issues about where exactly we draw the line. And it can sound really stupid to say we should have alcohol behind curtains in supermarkets. We can all tell jokes about it and it all sounds pretty silly. But we do have a major problem with how much we drink. And one of the problems is this stuff is being marketed at us at every single turn. And in fact, the reason we know we have a major problem is because if you survey people, there's a very large amount of the population that wishes that they drank less. And we'll state that, but on a day-to-day basis really struggle to do that. And if when you fill up for petrol or simply go to get a newspaper, you have to do it with beer and wine sitting around it all the time. The world has changed. It makes it harder to do it. It's exactly the same is true as smoking. Most people who smoke wish they smoked less. Most adults wish they did more exercise. If we can help them to do it, then maybe we should. Joe Kirby, one thing that interests me is, so from the supermarket to the pension company, to the credit union, to everybody who's trying to use advertising and marketing to make a decision, which is not necessarily in our self-interest, Let's say we accept that as the premise. Okay, Keith will have a stroke, but we'll just put that on one side for a minute. And and that the government should intervene. You know, why doesn't the government intervene more on stuff like financial regulation? Or I'll give you one example, say health insurance. Mm-hmm. We know that there are millions of different kinds of health insurance plans because mm-hmm. health insurance companies know we'll probably pick the wrong plan. Mm-hmm. And that what would be in everybody's best interest would be if we just went back to the old ways of plan A, B, C, D and E. And that would actually be end up being cheaper overall for everyone. Well, the government would love that because they own the VHI. Yeah. You know, just the <laughs> so, state health so why company. don't they? Why don't yeah. governments actually regulate? Because more? that wasn't. I mean, the, the VHI wasn't a good idea. It was a monopoly, and, and monopolies. Yeah, are but sorry, bad. but not about the VHI, okay. but the idea yes, of but, fewer but they plans. Do, they do regulate. They regulate. I mean, they regulate the. They're regulating the health insurance industry practically to death. If they keep at it, they're increasing the. Um, there, there's a levy that's going to go up. It's for. Uh, it's, 399 euros at the moment, 499, pardon me, at the moment, and it's going to go up another 10% in April. And that's money that basically goes to the VHI because they have a lot of older older 
um, customers. But um, I, the government does a lot of regulation, and most of it they don't do very well, I don't think, in, in many ways. They could have done it a lot better in terms of pensions. Many years ago, they introduced a pensions board. They introduced later the pension ombudsman. Uh, they also, you know, required pension companies to to meet certain criteria and, and whatever. Um, but while they allowed, while they induced the pension companies to show customers exactly how much it was going to cost to buy that product, they didn't insist that they do it simply and easily and, and transparently, in my view. Um, and the one thing that they didn't do, which everybody that I know who works in the uh, uh the good side of the pension industry, if you wish, people who really wanted this stuff, you know, to be to be sold and and mostly to have their members or their employees covered, wanted commissions to be abolished, and that is something. The sales commission is still there. It's been abolished in other countries. In the UK, it's been abolished in Australia. It's been abolished in a lot of different countries, but it's still there, and it is the inducement for the manufacturers of pension product. Okay, not yeah. investments overall, but mm. the product that is sold. It is their inducement to get salespeople, not financial planners, not financial experts, not 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 people who really know about this stuff, but salespeople to sell their product. They're trained. This is the product. This is how we want you to sell it. Um, and so they do, and they they get a very substantial commission from it, which really is not transparent. The customer probably knows that there's a commission if they haven't signed a check to to pay for the advice they're getting. And that's the problem with pensions, in my opinion, with with the mass sale of pensions, with people's perception of pensions, with their distrust of the pension industry. Is so just abolish they know it. That so just abolish they, the they commission. They kind of know there's big there's big um, commissions and costs and everything else, and that it's subject to the, the open market too, of course. Um, I, I think it should be abolished, absolutely. But the problem is that, uh, and this probably, Pete would probably know how to explain this better than me, there has been an entire industry built up over you know, decades and generations that say, you don't have to pay for this. You know, you come to us, we'll organize it, you will pay into it, but it's free. We'll organize it free for you. And they don't, people just don't want to put their hands in their pockets and say, I'm dealing with an expert, a real financial planner or financial advisor who understands this stuff. And like my doctor, my solicitor, my accountant, I have to pay this person to hopefully give me suitable advice. It may involve product or it might not. They may devise a great investment fund for you and that is suitable for you. But and that's how I invest and in my actually, pension. And that's a thing, you know, I've been too mean to pay people uh, to do that. So I started buying a couple of shares myself, which ended up in complete disaster land. So Pat has texted in and said, I think better public information websites would be helpful, but I really don't want the government nudging me in a certain direction as rightly or wrongly. I trust myself more. I have learned not to trust myself. Anna, <laughs> you see, look, we can talk about <laughs> these consumer issues, right? But Alan Greenspan went before Congress in 2008 when the financial world was crashing. And he said, and he was the head of the um, Federal Reserve. Isn't that right, Pete? Yes. Um, he said, I made a mistake in presuming that the self-interests of organizations, specifically banks and others, were such that they were best capable of protecting their own shareholders and their equity in the firms. So the whole idea of economics is that people will make a decision in their best self-interest. So all these experts and all these shareholders and all these stockbrokers and all these financial people, mm -hmm. they were supposed to be making decisions in the self-interest of their businesses and they didn't. So if they can't do it, you know, surely we need to look at 
all decision making, not just consumers. And you work with businesses, don't you? Yes, yeah. And presumably you see businesses making bad decisions. Well, I think hindsight is a great thing. You know, so when we after the decision, when we have the sort of luxury of looking back, we can judge whether a decision was good or whether a decision was bad. I think when we look at how we make decisions, um, I, you know, I would agree with Keith on one point, like it's not that everybody makes decisions the same way. We're all we there's a lot of individual differences in how we make decisions. So you'll get a cert- certain people will avoid decisions at all costs. Other people will have a more rational approach. So we can't really say one size fits all in how everybody makes yeah, decisions. Yeah, but I'll give you another example. Say, um, you know, I've worked inside a lot of companies and a mm. classic situation is somebody comes up with a target. We're going to make a million widgets um, yeah. in three months um, and it's going to cost, you know, a hundred grand or whatever mm-hmm. um, of course it goes over budget um, something goes wrong the time schedule is way out people start getting fired for not delivering but actually it was the person who decided that they could make a million widgets at the start that was wrong and you can call that PPARS in the public service but I've seen it happen all over the private sector too it's called a planning fallacy yeah you know when we know that simple things like that go wrong all the time and they know that mm-hmm. you know how do you get them to make better decisions and if they can't why should we trust them with decisions any more than we trust ourselves well i think it it kind of boils down to how we make those decisions so if we have people involved in planning if we educate people more about making decisions based on the available evidence to them. So, you know, we have this thing where you hear the executive that goes with his gut. You know, I've been in this business a long time. I know a good deal when I see one. Well, well, that experience does count in decision making, but it's also looking at the data available and the great data that we have available now from the ESRI and from lots of different agencies. But it's so it's not as simple as making a decision in the moment. It's we need with this planning, we need to look at all the evidence that's available. A big thing in project management is people don't look at the lessons that they should have learned Mm. when these projects were run before. Mm in other countries, in similar industries. Uh, there's a whole wealth of information there. So, But we are also constrained by time. So people in business often have to make quick decisions. And therein lies the dilemma, because sometimes you should make a decision where you've limited information, you've limited time, and you could be under a lot of stress. And you're wildly optimistic. And you're very <laughs> overconfident, wildly over over optimistic um, again Pete probably could tell us more about whether people are overconfident in these types of decisions or not but certainly I would say that's a factor So Pete this is a, a, something that I think probably is true is that behavioural economics isn't about these consumer decisions it's about human nature and and people in government are just as susceptible to um, human nature errors as well and people in companies, as I've just said. So do you think behavioural economics is a subplot or do you think it's a theory of everything? It's somewhere between the two. I mean, as we start to understand more and more about human nature, behavioural economics is the manifestation of that that applies to economic decision making, which is why we end up talking about pensions and consumer decisions to the extent that we do. But behavioural economics also touches on lifestyle issues because one of the things we discover is that people's decision making is inconsistent. And I referred to that before the break, the idea that you might smoke too much and you might believe yourself that you smoke too much, but your individual little decisions on a daily basis don't add up to the bigger decision that you wish you could make, which is to smoke less. 
Excuse me. So behavioural economics also gets involved in those bigger lifestyle issues about how you make decisions that have implications for outcomes much later in life, whether it's health outcomes or whether it's financial outcomes or whatever it happens to be. So yes, the more we understand the way people make those decisions, the more we understand the psychological mechanisms involved, the more we can adapt the contexts around us in ways that help people to make better decisions, if we use the science well. There's no guarantee that the science will be used well. Private companies can use the science to sell more um, high fat high sugar food at us or make us drink more or smoke more if they want to and they will try to do that because they make profit from doing it governments may use this science to help us to make better decisions or they may use this science to push a political agenda on us that we wouldn't agree with and we might quite rightly have a liberal backlash to and think they're being too paternalistic it's just science and there's a lot of it you're right it's quite universal because it's about us and it's about how we make decisions and we go through every day making decisions so this is really important science yeah absolutely but there's no correct ideological or political way to view it. It's just evidence and people will have different views about how to use it and some governments will use it well and some will use it badly and as has always been the case with science, some companies will use it to make you do things you shouldn't be doing or don't want to do and don't even realise you're doing and some of them will use it for good and help you buy better financial products and hopefully we'll choose those companies. (laughs) So Keith, I mean look would you not accept that psychological argument you know of these things that you know, uh, help us make bad decisions like anchoring, like herding, like status quo bias. You know, they do scientifically exist. Um, We've poor self-control. You know, we've all of these things. And it's not enough to say you're an individual. You can make a bad decision if you want, because your bad decisions do affect other people either through uh, caring for obese people, you know, if, they, if they're eating the high sugar products and um, having to look after them in their old age because they didn't take out the proper pension plan. And that's where your argument falls down. It's not individuals. It affects third parties. Well, no, because my argument doesn't fall down if you follow my argument to its logical conclusion. Your argument is predicated on the fact that the other people that are affected, whether they be taxpayers or whether they be, you know, the government, is because the government and taxpayers have decided to take up the the cost of these things. Jill touched on it earlier. If you're engaged in, you know, reckless behavior, whether it's smoking or, you know, as Pete says, if you're drinking a lot of high sugary drinks or whatever, if you end up with obesity and and your diabetes and lung cancer, your argument is, well, you see, now we've got to pick up the tab for that. So therefore, we should have been telling you at the start that you're not allowed to do it. And what I'm saying to you is don't that pick don't pick up the tab. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, the whole point is you can't turn around and say to a, a, a 25 year old, we are going to dictate all of your choices in what you consume because we've decided to confiscate your money and then pay for your health care if you need it. So, for example, we have the minimum alcohol pricing I touched on. The sugar tax is coming, plain packaged cigarettes, mandatory calorie menus, a ban on um, on fast food outlets near uh, schools. I mean, this is the most, undeniably, the most nanny state government we've had in the history of the country. And I, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a bizarre acceleration of these kind of measures. And, you know, Pete says, well, can we, maybe we have a liberal backlash and we decide, well, they've gone too far. But... Who's who's uh, you know who's advocating the other side of things, which is that you should be giving people free choice. I just want to touch on one issue that you mentioned, just with Jill, quickly, yeah. which is that you said why don't the government step in and regulate the healthcare system, mm. the healthcare health insurance uh, industry? It's the most hyper-regulated industry probably in the country. Yeah, but badly regulated. No, no, but, yeah, but the point is that 
you know, we introduced one regulation to counteract the other regulation yeah. because that regulation didn't work. So we've got community rating, we've got risk equalization. Yeah. All right. These things are kind of competing because one is against the other. And really what it's all about is protecting a monopoly that's owned by the state. Instead of just saying, look, the VHI is an obese behemoth, let it fall to the market forces. And, you know, if it, if it breaks up, it breaks up. Right, but then we turn into America, I'd be afraid. Jude Kirby, I don't want to get too bogged down no. in, in health insurance, but Keith has made, and there is a good argument against over-regulation mm-hmm. in the health insurance market. But based on what we know about how people make decisions, the actual answer that behavioural economics would say is simplify. There are too many products, it's too complex, deliberately so, just simplify it. That's the one regulation that I'm we need. I'm not sure about that. I, th- I, th- I think... Um, you know, governments, I don't think, can can legislate against people's, uh, I hate using the word stupidity, but maybe their... their uh, weaknesses. Yeah, their weaknesses. You know, <laughs> I, I think, the, and I only know about financial products, and what I know about them is that the, the banks, the insurance companies, the pension manufacturers, they're working in their own interest, the interests of themselves and their shareholders to make money off you. Yeah. And so are the people that they use to sell these products to you, which would be the salespeople. Um, and I think the government should step in there at least and say to them, if you're going to work that sort of a system, that's fine. But the customers, the consumers of your products must know exactly and in a very simple way the kinds of fees and charges that you are going to um, include in the sale of that product. And if, and, 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 and I'm kind of with Keith on this, I'm not in favor of a lot of regulation, but in the event that you don't do that, and this is what we have seen in this industry, then we are going to abolish the element that probably is, you know, the, 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 the problem. And in my case, I believe it is the commission part because it is the inducement for the, the company and the sales to sell products that are not suitable for Everybody, individually. Pete, I'm going to give you the final word. (laughs) The final word for me would be this. Take your decisions as governments and companies and individuals on the basis of evidence, not on the basis of ideologies or preconceived ideas. Sometimes simplification works. There is evidence that simplification of health insurance plans in the US worked in improved consumer decisions. The Card Act in the United States that reformed the way credit card companies had to provide information for consumers saved US consumers billions. It doesn't always work. They tried to simplify mortgages in the UK and it didn't work and it didn't improve consumer decisions and it increased the regulatory burden so it actually cost consumers. The crucial thing is what you need is evidence. You need to understand how people make decisions and then set environments to help them make better ones. If it turns out that having fast food outlets near schools makes kids eat more and makes them more obese, then as far as I'm concerned, if the evidence shows that, we can regulate perfectly reasonably to try to get our kids into a better environment. I don't think a 10-year-old is making a considered choice to end up being the weight they end up as an adult. And we really need to understand that it's always going to be the case. There are going to be more powerful forces in our society shaping our decisions. And the best thing we can do is use evidence to try to create a society so we can make better ones. OK. Pete Lund, Keith Redmond, Mandatory Jill Kirby, <laughs> Anna Connolly, many thanks. Aidan McKelvey researched, uh, Stephen Jordan produced, Marion Kennedy was on sound, and thank you for listening.